Alright, well, this is going to be an interesting day today. For starters, my recording room today is exceptionally warm. So luckily I was able to reduce the temperature by about 2 degrees, but it's probably not going to get cooler because of the sound-resistant measures I've taken. So, with all of that being said, once again, I'm Charles, and it's time for another episode of Charles Weekly Part T. There's an exciting episode up ahead, and before we get started, let's roll the intro. Alright, so today I'm going to talk about a couple of things. So architecture-wise, I'm talking about Pierre-Vis. Um, wait, did I say that right? No. Pierre-Vis in Montpellier, France. Now, if you're aware of this building, you may have seen a photo of it or not, but this is a work of architecture by Zaha Hadid Architects. And I saw it when I was um, looking at some architecture work and I said, I have to talk about this because I looked at it. There are not a lot of reasons for me to go to France, but this particular work of architecture is. To roughly translate it, I'd rather, if I go to France and I can see one thing, it would be this building not the Eiffel Tower, this one building. And I think really that speaks for its unique form and elements, I guess. So the name um, Pierre Vive translates to living stones. And that's because um, the believe it was the client, wanted um, the architecture of it to represent the fact that the goal of the building is to work on living stones or humans. So personally, I find that to be quite interesting, having everything of the building focusing on building up human knowledge and focusing on that is really interesting. So I believe I talked about, um, I think, I think I've talked about this last week with the uh, Centipec gas station, but this building also similarly has multiple parts under one envelope. And for this particular, um, building, three parts. Now, what I love about the building is that that isn't exactly evident when you glance at the building from a distance, but as you get closer, that little um, feature gets a little bit more noticeable. You can, at that point, tell that the building is actually three sort of functions all in one envelope. So those three functions are an archive, a multimedia library, and a sports department. So when I read about, when I heard about the sports department piece, that, that got a little bit of a question mark because a library and an archive, yeah, those, those two have seen put together a lot of times. 
a sports department. That I haven't heard included in with the other two. So I think it's a strange combination, but it makes it it makes sense the more you read into the building. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't able to get quite as much information as I wanted to on the sports department being in there, other than the fact that it's realistically speaking there. But when you have three functions, it makes sense to use three primary materials. And the three materials I'm talking about are concrete, glass, and steel. Well, that sounds like the modern recipe for buildings, it's a little bit more than that. Exposed concrete is not often seen in buildings. Usually the areas where you see exposed concrete as is are things like a parking garage or a mechanical area or another sort of area that you wouldn't be expecting to be highly transverse or highly used. So think, think about it. Most places you walk into, you're not just going to see um, concrete walls straight off. Obviously, with um, a bunch of larger stores, you're going to see concrete floors. But other than that, concrete walls, not as much. But the formwork used with the concrete, just have, you have all flowing lines. It's not as much about... It, it's taking and somehow making a quote-unquote cold material seem like a uh, warm one. I, I don't think there are many buildings that really use concrete to be inviting, but this is one of them. So when the um, building was, or when everything was being proposed, because you had an archive, you had a library, and you had a sports department, all as separate facilities, um, Zaha Hadid won by proposing to combine the three facilities into one. And the project was done because the existing facilities for each of these three functions was ever so slightly outgrown, right? Realistically speaking, it, it, when you run out of everything that grows generally ends up needing to move to a bigger environment. So as we grow, we need, we need larger clothes, larger shoes. As businesses grow, they need larger spaces. And as a library and archive get more collections, they need more room to store all of those. So, and design, this is where designing for the future really comes into play because um, a lot of times if you walk into a building, if you were to walk into a brand new building and say, oh, why are there so many empty shelves? It doesn't make sense right off the bat, but it's a future design. And when I say future design, I mean designing for the future.
So, having everything there, the concrete sections sort of identify where the where you have the archive elements. Because for preservation reasons, you can't have an archive getting too toasty, not too toasty, you can't, you can't have the um, harmful effects that the sun gives causing damage to protected materials. And in my particular case, you have the sun superheating the room in which I'm recording, which really does not aid um, climate control measures, which a space like an archive um, needs so importantly that the systems that keep the space um, under uh, climate control are usually attached to a generator because those spaces cannot, under any circumstances, exit a certain um, temperature range. So that's where having those elements opaque comes in great use. Another thing I like about this, and I think more generally about Zaha Hadid's um, architecture, is that the there's just a great attention to detail. And I think detail is not only important, but I think it's what gives the building a lot of character. So you can have you could have a simple painting. If you like, you could abstract everything. So, taking taking a uh, painting, you could say, okay, here's how it started off. Maybe you had three colors throughout it. Not doesn't seem like much, right? Add some more colors into it. It starts getting more detailed. Add even more colors into it and lines and all that other stuff. And then you get a work of art. And I think this happens to have gotten to that area as well. It, it's, a, it's really a life-sized piece of art. And using all of the different organic elements helps to helps to keep the building in a sort of flowing state. All, all too often, everything function, functions in a linear and linear straightforward way. And what this building does in particular is it keeps the straightforward elements and it keeps some of the linear elements, but it makes some of those elements feel less linear and shuffling people through um, sort of arteries helps with that. So when you enter the building underneath the cantilevered auditorium, you have an easy guide towards 
the main arteries for the multimedia library. And doing that guides people through to the crucial spaces. Similarly to how one could enter a, what's the word for it? If you enter a store, right? Most of the times, a couple of elements are very um, quickly located inside of the entrance. So one of those examples is the customer service department and another one is usually restrooms. So by doing that, putting everything at the main artery, the main entrance of the building, or main entrance where you're going, maybe it's, maybe you have multiple entrances, but using the primary entrance to have that sort of, have those elements present. What that does is first, it's sort of saying, hey, customer service is the first thing that you, first thing that you should be thinking about. So if you think someone has great customer service, then you're more likely to spend a little bit more money. And bathrooms for obvious reasons, because shopping in, um, it, it can make, if that's the first thing you need to do when you walk in the store, makes your life a little bit easier and makes you more likely to spend more time shopping. So similarly to that, the important elements of the multimedia library are present right off of the primary artery. And just to convey how strong the artery is, there are escalators running up to it, or up and down. So that, that symbolizes the, or shows just how much throughput is expected through this, uh, this particular area of the building. So one doesn't necessarily think about um, how some of these elements are used right off the bat, but by inserting certain things quickly, by inserting, not quickly, at the forefront of, um, of the forefront of the entrance, helps to make a good first impression. It shows that this, that the escalators are there to guide you to the primary aspects of the facility and other areas. So when you're walking up to the building, you're walking under the uh, cantilever, it sort of prepares you to be um, taken into this building envelope. So another piece is that Throughout, you have sort of concrete areas separated by glass throughout the facade of the building on all four sides. And I think that helps. To separate, you have areas that can't have the daylight, but it makes sure that there's daylight where there can be. It's daylight just helps make everything just a little bit more peachy, inviting, comfortable, and warming.
So can't complain, can't complain too much about daylight, although doing it efficiently is important so that you don't accidentally superheat a room. So working on that, I think it's interesting. And one other piece of the building that really caught my eye throughout a lot of the hallways and um, arteries of the building, you have lines on the floor that connect to doors, connect to other rooms. So it really feels like the building is connected. You, and I, I think that would be the fun part. I want right now I kind of want to go to that building and walk through the hallways and just see where all of the different lines lead to. So may may not sound as interesting for some, but for me, it sort of, it sort of stands out like a uh, circuit board. You have all the different um, lines going and connecting everything to everything else to make one interconnected um, system. So doing all of that, I think the building is for is very certainly rational. Everything is laid out in a rational way. The function, you have the magical number three located through multiple areas of the building, three functions, three sort of pieces of the building, three, um, three primary materials. And I'll also say, now that I'm thinking about it, you really have three, uh, what's the word for it? Three sort of primary colors outside of the building too. So the glass and the um, steel sort of blend together, but you have areas of with yellow steel just to give it a little bit of accent. And I think that really makes it look amazing. So, and to a conversation that I've had previously, not on, not on the uh, or not on the podcast here, but I've had it with um, some of my other friends and colleagues in the uh, in architecture, and what they've said is not not exactly said. It was a, it was a discussion. And we all concluded that a building doesn't necessarily have architecture. Architecture usually has a building. But to make a long story short, a building does not have to be architecture. You can have a building that isn't architecture. So in that case, then what you may be thinking, what is architecture and does this qualify? Yes, this I think certainly qualifies as architecture. And the reason I say that is because it is thought out, it is planned out for that use. Everything is put together and designed as efficiently as possible to be used in the manner that it's designed for. It's not a let's move in and figure out what's how to make things work for us. It's Let's make things work for us before we move in. So 
Case in point, when you walk in, it feel, everything feels like it works because it does. It's efficiently established to make everything work without a problem. Now, problems come up on the technology side more often than not. And one of those happens to be data breaches. Initially, when I was writing this episode, I was going to talk about one, but now I have a second to talk about. And these both happen to be social media. So, first thing I'm going to talk about is what I was originally thinking of with the Facebook data breach. Finding out about this one just happened to have irked me a little bit. The breach affected about 20% of users. So basically, so one in five people are affected. And for most people who ha have a household of, let's say, four or five people, it's basically saying one person in every house happens to have gotten whacked with this. And I call that a big oops. So the data that was leaked includes names, emails, phone numbers, locations, dates of birth, and relationship statuses. So the way the breach ended up working is that it scraped a lot of information that is uh, theoretically publicly available. But Still, scraping is technically a violation of their of the terms and service in case you happen to have read them. So the breach actually occurred in August 2019. So I shouldn't be speaking about this now, like and finding out about this as recently as I am. But this is when things end up coming to light because the data was just released for free which means anyone who has access to it can get it and use it for whatever purposes that they deem necessary. And generally speaking, the uses that you'd get use them for are not exactly going to be what I'd call uh, legitimate, straightforward, and... Hmm, I'm trying to find the word for it. Nope, can't find the word. All right, but nothing, nothing good can, is going to come out of having this aggregated data just available for free, no, no um, questions asked. So the vulnerability, according to Facebook, has since been patched. But what I've... What I take a great issue with is that Facebook has said that it will not notify users. So for, for me, that's an important thing to do. If you know that someone, or someone's data has been leaked, you should be telling them so that they know to be careful, that they know to keep their eyes open. Maybe nothing will happen, 
but that way they know that to be on the lookout in case something does happen. So, if any at any point in time your information that's not supposed to be accessible to the whole wide world is accessible to the whole wide world and included in that group are people who have malicious intent, I think I'd like to know. So, while nothing along the lines of credit card numbers or there are people whose phone numbers have been leaked and for people who go to lengths to keep their um, cell numbers quiet because especially the higher up the food chain you get your cell number becomes a little bit more important and and that means more people would like more people would like to get their hands on it and obviously if you are what whatever if you're on higher up the food chain you can't be having everyone and their mother calling you around the clock so so having phone numbers accessible that can be a problem and yes people can go through the work of changing their phone number but I don't think I'd like to be inconvenienced in having to do such a thing. So, yeah. Even though Facebook hasn't made, um, hasn't let people know, hey, your data is in this, you're one of the 20%, sorry, or you're not one of the 20%, you're good. That's just... There's another way to check. So on your own, you can go to a website called Have I Been Pawned, um, spelled, or Have I Been, and then the last word is spelled P-W-N-E-D. So that website allows you to check for free whether or not your email or phone number has been included in a data breach. So this website was created by Troy Hunt, who is a Australian security consultant and a trustworthy name for this purpose. So you quite literally, I've, I did this to make sure that I wasn't included in the um, issue in the data breach, but you can go there, type in your email address or your phone number. That's all you need to do, and it will tell you if that information was included in a data breach. And not just this one, but previous ones as well. Which I found useful because I, there was another company that ended up being hacked that had a, for lack of better words, had passwords leaked. So upon discovering that, well, I changed, I changed passwords. So obviously this does go with other um, best cybersecurity practices for keeping your accounts safe. So for starters, um, use a strong password always, um, preferably, and so strong password, you want at least eight characters with uppercase, lowercase numbers and special characters. 
and ideally it's something easy for you to remember but hard for um, other people to try and guess. So so for that, basically don't use your your name, your date of birth. Definitely do not put any part of your social security number, credit card, bank pins, all that into a password because if your password does get leaked, now that personal information is at risk. And if you thought you had a headache having to change a password, it's a bigger headache if you have to now be on the lookout for identity theft because certain things are protected, other things are not. In the event of the target breach that happened a couple years back, and when I say couple, I mean a few, the fact that credit card data was um, released enabled, um, what do you call it, meant that Target had to pay for everyone who had been affected by the breach to have identity theft protection. And the reason for doing that is obviously because sensitive personal information is now out there. So you kind of want to have a little bit of peace of mind. So if you can't keep the protection in place of the data, then you should be paying for other protection for the people who've been hit with this. But if that data wasn't included, um, sensitive personal information wasn't um, part of the breach besides passwords, then they're not going to have to pay for identity theft protection. You put your social in there, someone figures out that, hey, they have a piece of your social. Now you have a problem. So long story short, don't include certain personal information in a password. It's not worth it. Might be easy for you to remember, but it, it won't help you. With respect to data breaches, I'm now aware of a LinkedIn data breach. And when I say data breach, it's more of, it, it's along the lines of the Facebook tool. So basically scraping information that's uh, out there to put things together. So I believe that includes similar information, but having found out about this, maybe 10 minutes before recording for the episode. I felt like it was something worthy to talk about, but not something that I'm going, I can spend a lot of time on. So at present, I don't know if I'm going to be, I don't know if I'm included in that data set. However, it does include, I believe 500 million users. So, there's a decent likelihood. For lack of better words, that amounts to, um, what is it? If the world population, I think was seven, or oh, it's somewhere in between seven and eight billion. But if you think about it, even on the, let's think about an eight billion, you have, a sixteenth of the 
people in the world affected by this. So, one in every 16 people. Um, that could roughly translate to, I don't know. Hmm. Basically, well, if you were to think about a school, one person in each classroom obviously would have to be a high school or college because of age requirements for having a LinkedIn profile. But imagine one person in every high school classroom has gotten affected by this. I think that's the best way to put it. So on the upside, the despite releasing about 2 million of the, of 2 million users information to prove that they, what they had and that it was available, the hacker group is, or the group responsible for this is sending out, or is I think requesting a four digit number for all of the information. So, I think that, I think and I hope that Microsoft will take the move of buying the data that was scraped. Especially if it is only being sold once, it would be very intelligent, I think, for Microsoft to just buy the data out, buy the data outright, and then, yeah, you had a little bit of an incident, but you spent money and you got you purchased your data back and now it's not there to be worried about. So hopefully that will repair um, their situation a little bit better, although I'm sure they'll be fixing the uh, vulnerability very soon. Speaking of things to repair, Lewis Rossman is currently working on a, what's the word for it, a GoFundMe for $6 million to try and get a direct ballot initiative um, worked on in Massachusetts for right to repair. So the basic principles of right to repair are that you get to choose where your device gets um, fixed and certain repair documentation is available to you. Now, things like the right to repair already exist in locations such as autom the automotive industry. So if you buy a car, you don't need to bring it back to the dealership to get it fixed, which in a lot of cases is the worst thing that you could possibly do, or at least for your wallet. But you have the ability to bring it to other repair shops that you may know and love to get the work done. And even with that be with all of that, you have one aspect of your car that is guaranteed to be user replaceable. And that happens to be the headlights. So under any circumstances, a car manufacturer has to provide a way 
for the user to be able to change their own headlights. Obviously, in more modern generations we're getting with, you have LED headlights that are have custom pieces in, but I haven't looked, but there's got to be a simple way of handling that. Because as long as LEDs do last, they do have a lifespan. So just having the ability to replace your own some of your own stuff i think ends up being ends up being considerably useful and for some things there are there are trade-offs involved so i'm sure many people remember the time when a battery was easily user replaceable and nowadays, that isn't as in modern smartphones. That isn't as much a feature. So, while that's had a theoretical advantage of having a what? What's the word for it? Having the advantage of being able to switch out your own battery in case the thing ever decides to go bad but it takes it makes the phone a little bit thicker so i think the important piece is having the ability to bring it to places that are able to go and take your device apart and fix the battery so where that's leading i don't know Hopefully, everything will work out well in this um, piece for right to repair. But I think everything should have some degree of ability to repair. And I, that's not only sustain. That's that's not only some a important ability to have. That's also for sustainability. I don't think you can really claim to be sustainable if um, one piece goes and everything that you, er, the entire device is rendered useless, which for a lot of things is where we currently are. I know I have a variety of different things, er, uh, different devices, and I know my iPad, if something happens on that, um, I may be able to get it replaced, but I don't think I'd be able to do it on my own. But I know that Apple is probably going to charge me an arm and a leg for it because I don't have Apple Care on it. But to make matters even more interesting, or on the other end of the spectrum, you have something like a desktop computer. So if the, um, what, if the storage drive in that desktop goes bad, and I'm saying desktop as in a um, custom-built desktop, if the memory goes, or if the storage goes bad, assuming you're keeping backups, which you should, and that's a whole different topic, I open the thing up, take the old storage drive out, 
get a new storage drive, put that in, and I'm good. And where a lot of devices are getting to now is that you don't have that ability. And sometimes that's because things are slaughtered onto the motherboard, and other times that's just because things are basically sealed up. And that, that's where you get into some of the trade-offs areas. So where, I, where I'm nitpicking on this, I think, is I know I've had laptops where I can upgrade the storage, and that's actually been a useful option because if hard drives were permanently, permanently attached, there would be a lot of laptops that wouldn't be as useful today. So I was able to keep a, keep a laptop in use for a longer period of time just by switching out the drive to a solid state one. And I've done that on two laptops now, and that means for both of those laptops, that that's the difference between sitting on a shelf and actually being used, which is considerable. Yeah. With the $6 million goal of this right to repair initiative, though, according to Rossman, if this, if the $6 million goal is either reached or within reach, they will go through with bringing in a um, law firm to have the direct ballot initiative um, put through so that voters can directly select to have right to repair in it. In the event that they do not reach the goal, which I believe needs to be hit by August. Fun the funds raised will be used for traditional means of lobbying. So trying to convince lawmakers, hey, put through things to protect consumers. Which I think needs to be done because there is right now, there's not near there's not nearly enough. Uh, materials recovered from e-waste. And with electronic devices being more and more common, we're going to run into issues if we don't can't reclaim some of the rare earth metals. And if, especially if we don't, then we may get to a point where we are in, where we can't have more devices because we simply don't have the materials to be able to do so. So, Long story short, I think it's been a fairly interesting week. A little bit of data breaches, a little bit of Zaha Hadid, which is definitely um, more enlightening. And other than that, I think that's that's that for the week. Um, wasn't plan wasn't planning to uh, mention it, but now that the thought hits me, Apple has announced um, WWDC two thousand twenty one, and it will be done, I believe, 
in the early part of June. They published the date range, but I don't remember what that date range is off the top of my head. Similar to last year, though, it will be all online and all for free. So if you're interested in learning about possibly going down the developer route or learning about software development, at least for Apple, I think the, there are several things that could be um, interesting to put through or to look at for the event. So looking forward to it. And I know um, whenever they, I'm sure Apple's going to have a keynote during that. And I'm absolutely looking forward to whatever they decide to announce. I've heard some rumors, but I can't wait to see for myself what has actually been established between both of the, between software and hardware, I think that I'm already looking forward to. So only have to wait about two more months for that, but you don't have to wait two more months for another episode of Charles Weekly Part T. So in order to know when the episode, or next episode is released, make sure you subscribe um, you can go to anchor.fm slash Charles Weekly Partee where you can listen to all episodes of the podcast. You can interact by leaving a voice message or you can support the podcast. Also, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts to be able to um, tell the world that you've enjoyed listening. So, not to mention, you can... If you want to see the action, or you can look at that on YouTube. So with all that being said, my party for the week is be digitally smart. Make sure your passwords are safe. I'd say check, run a check through Have I Been Pawned and make sure that if you are on that and you find websites that you haven't changed your password, that have been leaked, that you haven't changed your password on, I'd say change those quickly. And if you have passwords that you know aren't strong, change those too. Because there's, changing your password can't hurt. So make it something easy to remember and hard to guess. Take care, enjoy the week. I know it's getting more spring where I am, so it's going to be a fun one. So take care, let's roll the outro.